It's always interesting when you're... Court and I didn't really talk about what I was going to be speaking on today, but yet the second song really struck me because in that was significant parts of what I was going to preach on. And I'll mention this a little later, but how God works things out like that. There's times where you just sit back and smile and go, yep, that's just another God thing. He's just moving things along. He's got control. It's one of those periods we can kind of rest in. Um, We're going to talk about pride and humility today, which if you've ever done teaching, you know that whatever you're working on gets worked on you tenfold. (laughs) So it's been a fun couple of weeks working on this one. Um, pride and humility. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 and in Luke chapter 18. We're going to flip back and forth. Um, the Gospels talk of the story of the rich young ruler in both of these cases, and I want to kind of focus on that. Um, before we start, let's go ahead and uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for time to look into your word. Lord, we ask that you will guide us today. Lord, that you will drill into our hearts, soften the areas that we have hardened through sin, through focusing on our own service. Lord, we ask today that you would meet with us in a very real way. That it will be your words, not ours, not mine. Lord, we we ask you this, expecting an answer. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Um, Luke chapter 18 is where I want to focus at. If you go to verse 18 to 30, you can stay with me. Keep a a finger in Mark 10 because we'll flip back there periodically. But... Luke chapter 18 says this. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have all left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, typical focus on this is 
kind of focusing on that last half, especially if you're talking with pastors and missionaries or if you're a time to send them out, they'll focus even on those last couple verses there, that there will be a reward not only here but in the future. What I want to do, though, is go back to the first part of this passage, those first four to five verses especially, and look at the questions that are being asked and why. And why is it that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all pick up on this certain young ruler, this rich young ruler, this young man and the questions he asks and why? The context of it in Mark 10 Starting off, verse 1 says this, Getting up, he, that is Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. So Jesus begins teaching, and in his teaching he begins focusing on a couple of things. One is the context of money. Luke picks this up in chapter 16 where he says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And people, okay, this is, this is context about money. That's, that's why the rich young ruler is so sad. That's, that's what the focus is, right? Verse 14 in that says this, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Now, as I was preparing for this, CJ was reading some different scriptures for me as we'd drive along. He'd stay with me over the summer kind of thing rather than going off to daycare. So we, we spent a lot of time together, and I had him reading, and we talked about this verse. And it's one of those ones that I'd encourage you to really settle in and think on because, let me just hit it again for you. This is Luke 16:15, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And I think about that because of what are we in our sight, what do we value? We start making those value decisions, okay? What, what's, what's, what are we valuing? What do we put value on? Because you back up, what did the Pharisees put value on? They justified themselves. That's where, their, that's where their values were. The reason they wanted the money wasn't for the sake of the money itself. It was to take care of themselves. Where did they place their trust at? Did they place it in God? or in themselves. And that's the root of what the questions that the rich young ruler gets at and how Jesus answers him. Now, contrast what the Pharisees did with, like in John chapter 13, where the disciples get their feet washed, right? Picture this, you've got a room, everybody trudges around in sandals all day, feet are all dirty, they come in to eat, and all the disciples are like, well, I'm sitting down at the table. I'm sitting down at the table. And Jesus sits down at the table. And nobody reaches over and says, oh, you know what? I, I need to wash feet. Nobody wants to take that position. So Jesus gets up, and what does he do? Go 
goes and gets the towel, hikes up his, his, his robe, and goes over to Peter to start washing his feet. Peter's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. No, no, no. You're the master. You're the rabbi. Right? There's some pushback there. Why? Because there's, well, there's certain things that we value, right? You're the master. You're supposed to be up there, but we're, we're equal. So we're, none of us are going to get below each other. So we've got to... And Jesus approaches them on a couple of issues. On who's greater? Who's lesser? Who are you putting your value upon? Where are you putting that value? Are you valuing yourself or what you're doing? Or are you valuing some esteem that you have in yourself? What does pride really mean? What does it really mean to humble ourselves? Now, the context of Luke chapter 18, let's, let's look at that first verse there. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right off the bat, Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't answer his question right off. What he does is what? Why are you calling me good? The term there is, he actually calls him holy. That's the term he actually uses. He's a holy teacher. Throughout the Old Testament, that, that, that phrasing, you can see it and you have to turn it, I'll just read through these. First Chronicles 16.34 says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Second Chronicles 5.13 says this, in unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting, when then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. That's the Shekinah glory of God filling it. His goodness is a holy goodness. Psalms 106.1, we've seen this periodically. Praise the Lord, oh give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Jesus has got these verses in his head going, why are you calling me good? You're calling me holy. There's only one who's holy. Jesus is trying to lead him to an answer, isn't he? Jesus leads him to the answer of, if there's only one who's holy, and you're calling me holy, who am I? Rich young ruler's like, yeah, okay, okay, uh-huh, what, what? I want my answer. Totally misses the point of what Jesus answers. Jesus is saying, you know what? You're speaking to God. This is one of those things that we kind of overlook because... In context, the Pharisees heard that and went, oh, he doesn't deny that he's good. He just says, why are you calling me good? There's one who is good. But the young man just sits there and keeps going, where's my answer? Where's my answer? Jesus says, okay. Well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And yet what happens? He gives him, he gives him something of an answer the boy's looking for, isn't he? I say boy, I should say young man. And instead, 
of getting something of an answer of a real heart answer, the young man gives an answer of what? All these I kept since I was a boy. I've done this. I've done this since I became a son of the commandment. I've had my bar mitzvah at 13. I've followed it. I'm there. I've done these things. Now, this is kind of a caution for us, especially those of us who are in church periodically or consistently, because sometimes we'll have an answer we're expecting. This young man had grown up and been consistent. He was following the laws. He was following the rules, but he was waiting for his answer. Jesus had already answered him to start off, but he didn't want to hear it. He wanted his answer. That's kind of a caution to us because if we become so focused on what our answer is, what our religion is, what our belief is, are we really going to hear when Jesus speaks to us? Now, in this, verse 22 comes in and says this. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Mark adds another insight into there. It says, when he said this, and Jesus loved him. Now, don't get this in the context of Jesus went, wow, you did it right. You did it all perfect. Congratulations. You're perfect just like me. Uh-uh. I think of it in terms of the context of the woman who was caught in adultery, thrown at Jesus' feet, and after everybody else walks away because he says, you without sin throw the first stone, and he looks up and says, woman, where are they that accused you? Go, sin no more. Sympathy towards her. Jesus loves. We teach that to the children, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. That's at the root of this. It doesn't mean that he accepts sin. He knows that there's a penalty, and he willingly accepted it for us. In this, though, Jesus heard, or Jesus heard his response and said, you still lack one thing. Now, a lot of times we looked at this and said, oh, this is a context of money, right? So he's got too much money, that's the problem. No. The problem isn't an exterior one, it's an interior one. They looked at it and said, people said, well, later on, how was it? Well, who can be saved? How can, if the rich man can't get, because he's got to take a camel through the eye of a needle, and that literally means needle. Little needle, stick thread through it, okay? Can't fit a camel through that. There's a theory out there about there being a keyhole door or something. That's not what it's about. Keyhole gate that camels can try to slither through. That's not what it's about. The disciples there understood it very clearly. You can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. And Jesus says, that's right. With man, these things are impossible. With God, it is possible. Wow. What Jesus focuses on, though, is this. He says, you lack one thing. You lack true obedience. You're going through this going, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. I, I, I. 
I'm sure Jesus had a flashback of some other eyes. We're going to read it in a few minutes. Sometimes we call this eye problems. Somebody's got eye problems. All they can talk about is I did this and I did that. And they start puffing themselves up. And they're full of it. We have a, I like to use the, the, the sponge idea, you know. Do you, what's the sponge full of? Keith, if you leave the sponge full of concrete, what's going to happen to it? You know, tunk, tunk, knock yourself out. If we're going to be servants for Jesus, we've got to be ready to be squished, flexible. We can think of the labors and the trials where we're really twisted. And we see people who go through that, don't we? James says, count it joy when we get to these points because he's purifying our faith. He's going to receive glory for it. But if we're full of pride, it's kind of like that concrete. Sponge full of concrete doesn't do a whole lot of good, does it? You drop it on somebody's foot and break it, that'd be about it. It's a good doorstop. Should I say a pew filler? No. Um, What good is it? Now, I like to think of this as a throne issue. Um, I'm not talking about the throne that I like to slide into and get some privacy. This is a throne issue in the heart. Okay? I don't have chairs on either side, but if you have one, one side over here, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says what? For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What the rich young ruler was doing was over here. I've done all these things since I was a kid. I did. That's me. Now what? That's when Jesus looks and says, "Um, you're still lacking one thing. Okay? You still haven't humbled yourself to God. It's a throne issue. Are you on this side serving yourself and doing these things for yourself, or have you put it over here and someone give it to God? We can give an answer. I've given it to God. I'm I'm over here. I humbled myself. Really? How much of the sponge have you humbled? The whole thing? Or just a piece of it? Before you answer that, let me me do this. I do some consulting, and one of the things I do is we kind of do what we call a 40,000-foot strategy. We get up, take the high view, and say, okay, what's, what's the bigger plan? What's the overall strategy you're looking at? And then give some advice from there. In looking at the passage here, as we're looking at what Jesus is talking to and who he's talking to and who's around at the time, we get some other insights into this. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17, you know, right before this, we start talking about contrast to the Pharisee and the publican in prayer. The courts preached on that not too long ago, so I won't go into it. <clears throat> But it's the difference between outward conformity and pride versus an inward humbleness. One stands over here and says, I've done this, I've kept these rules, I've done that. Thank you, I'm not like this guy. Who comes in and throws himself on God's mercy, says, I'm a sinner. I can't do it. It's up to you. 
And Jesus is very clear on what? Which one walked away justified? It wasn't the person who said, I, I, I. Now, difficulty is there. Those little eyes can sneak in very quietly, very carefully. But the other side to it is, sometimes we think we're over here, and we need to look at the other passage, which is this. In Mark, he slides in some other little piece in there. It's an interesting little piece in there. He talks about the children who were there. Jesus was sitting down, and the little kids were trying to come up to him. And the disciples were doing what? No, no, no. Keep the kids away. Keep the kids away. He says, no. Bring them to me. Let them come. In fact, when the rich young ruler comes up, those little kids are sitting around him, sitting on his lap. So this rich young ruler comes up and he's like, Jesus, you know, imagine he's probably got, you know, one on either leg and probably three or four holding on. You know, like kids like hold on and touch and somebody's got their hand up. Carolyn, you know that. <laughs> They're clinging in a way. They, they want to touch. And it's part of showing affection. And Jesus is surrounded by these little kids. And let's face it, he's surrounded by adults throughout the, throughout the Bible who are trying to touch him, aren't they? Some of them touch him and get healed. Just to touch him. We see that with celebrities nowadays. People, they go through someplace, everybody's got to touch them. They want to touch. They want to get something. Same kind of mentality. The kids came up and they sat there with him. And Jesus was very pleased with that. And he said in, in, in verses uh, 10, 13 through 16 in Mark, he goes through it and he, he talks about the fact that the kids are there. And he references them in verse 23 and 24. We'll flip over to Mark. In 13 through 16, says this, And they were bringing the children to him, so he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. In Jesus' words there are, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Now, we kind of like to go, Okay, receive it like a child. Yeah, it's, it's okay, that's easy. But there's more to it than that. There's a humbling. The child doesn't go, give me that. This is mine. I get it. Thank you. That's not what he's talking about. Humbling ourselves. We see kids who do that, don't we? I deserve that. Is that really the gift? Jesus says to humble. Be humble like a child. Not a spoiled brat. Not one who just acts spoiled once in a while. But to humble ourselves as a child and accept the gift. Now, in the context of Luke, Jesus tells them three things. What? Sell, give, and follow. And oftentimes we look at that on the money side, and, and we can touch on that. But let's go back to something. The Bible's not a, The gospel is not a poverty gospel. Okay? We went through that in the Middle Ages, if you remember. Asceticism. Give everything away and be very poor and it's not consistent with the rest of the context, the rest of the Bible even. But there is a focus on this. Who do you rely on? Do you rely on wealth or do you rely on God? 
That's the real heart of the matter. Giving. It's more than just saying, oh, well, they need something, so I'll give a few pennies to them. The giving goes back to this. There's an old term called divine providence. I like that term. It's, it's kind of gone out of usage. But divine providence brings up this other connotation that God provides. The Old Testament they refer to it as God the provider, Yahweh provider. Why? Because is your faith in he who provides, controls, makes, brought the whole world into existence? We saw it at the Creation Museum last week. It was, it was fantastic. Yesterday, I say last week. It's gone fast. But this creator provides for us. Or do we say, you know what? I need these extra pennies for myself. Who are we relying on? Are we relying on God to provide for us? Or do we rely on ourselves and start having that eye trouble? Now, follow. We can look at the sheep analogies. There are various parables. There's language along how people are to be as sheep and follow. There's discipleship points and how Jesus goes out and teaches them to disciple. Acts goes on into that and how to disciple. But I want to focus on something even beyond some of the epistles and go into 1 Peter. 5, 5 through 7 says this. You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you, he's talking to the church, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Now, Carolyn, if you don't mind, I'm going to to tell the ring story real quick. Just a short version of it. Your ring story. It was too good of a story. She shared it with me yesterday. I was looking at some other ones, but since it's so apropos in time. um, I was talking to her on Friday, I think it was, and she said, and and by the way, pray I can't find my wedding ring. I think it fell off while I was out doing the raking and getting the mulch and stuff, and we've got to do some searching for it, and I could hear the anxiety in her voice, and I'm kind of sentimental that way, so I, I make sure I prayed for her. I was thinking about it, and she told me the next day, she said, you know, midnight when I went to bed, I reached over to set the alarm clock, and there was my ring sitting there. After I'd gone around looking and searching, and looked at it and said, you were laughing, weren't you, God? Because I, I was all getting worked up. But you know what? Verse 7 of that says, Casting all our anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Those are the kinds of things, those are little lessons we get, aren't they? I, I'm a firm believer that God, I mean, there's a, a reason we have a sense of humor. It's because God has a sense of humor. He imbued us with it as well. And those are the times that we could go, oh, I finally found it. Or you can sit back and go, okay, God, I'm sorry. Yep, you're teaching me a lesson. I've watched CJ run around for his shoes 
before school. I can't find my shoes. He's getting stressed out. Finally, I'd be like, CJ, do you remember where you came in last night? Uh-uh. Okay, do you remember going downstairs on the computer and taking your shoes off down there and you never put them away? Oh, yeah. You know, I let him search around for a few minutes, kind of get the point across to him, put them away, take care of it. And I think sometimes, you know, God does those kind of parenting moments with us. He doesn't always use the discipline. Sometimes humor is a very effective teaching tool, isn't it? Yes, God. Okay, thank you. But what it comes down to is, do we look at the teaching lesson from a humble perspective or from a position of pride? Dad, I can't believe you didn't tell me where those shoes were right off the bat. (laughs) Yeah, good luck next time. (laughs) You could be going barefoot to school, right? How do we approach it? Or do we go, thank you, Lord. I should be resting in you. I've got to rest in you. Now, before we go into a humbleness and talk about the humbleness, I want to look one final piece on pride. And the final piece on pride I want to look at is if you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 15. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15 says this. How you have fallen from heaven... O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Most people understand that to be a reference to when Satan fell. It's the five I wills. Those little eyes that sneak up. Vanity and pride. That's a glimpse into what Satan's heart was. I, 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 I. His five I wills started that. That should be a caution to us. Whenever we start to say I... <clears throat> that's what Satan did when he fell. Well, I... This is for the glory of God. That works a lot better than, well, I did that. Well, praise God. How do we do it? Because when we start saying, I will, I am, I'm... We need to be careful that we're not falling into that I disease of self and putting ourself on the throne. More personally, John 5.44 says it this way. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? What are you focusing on? Are you focused on getting your own glory? Or are you focusing on being a conduit for God's glory? Again, Luke 16.15. Think about it in these terms. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, But God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among men, that which we value, is detestable in the sight of God. It's not irritated by God. It's not just out of his way. It's detestable to God. 
What do we hold as the rich young ruler did? Are we waiting for our answer? Do we have an answer in place? Are we, here's what I expect. Okay, holy God, give me this. And it starts back with, okay, why are you calling me holy? Okay. Are you going to listen to me? Or are you just looking for your answer? See, the rich young ruler went away sad because he was focused on outward things. You notice he never asked Jesus what the one thing he lacked was. Go do these things. Okay, more things. I've got to go do this. Okay. I can wrap myself in the, in the comforts and I can do these things. Man's values versus God's values. The five I wills versus humbling to God. How humble. We read in Mark chapter 10, verse 15 says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. There's an old phrase called the gift is in the giving. Um, example I read one time was uh, different um, people from different races had come together and it was very cold. They'd found the one young man kind of washed up and he didn't even have gloves. And one of the other races found him and says, well, let me give you my, I have an extra pair of gloves, let me give you those. And he says, no, no. He says, well, they're sitting there. The gifts are the given, they're yours. But the man went on and says, nope, I'm not taking them. I could do this myself. So he got finger or frostbite on his fingers so bad that he was looking at losing his fingers. And he went back and said, um, are, the, are, the, are the gifts still there? Are the gloves still there? And he says, they're yours for the taking. But if you don't take them, is it really yours? Okay. God's offered salvation for everyone but it's up to us to take it. There comes a point when it's too late. James chapter 4, 1 through 10, is a very practical application for Christians, for those who would serve Christ, for those who would say that they would serve him. Read with me if you would. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, you do not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it is said, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Now you notice James 4, 6 
In 1 Peter 5, 5, had that same quote about God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Those of you with little notes in your Bible have already noticed that's Proverbs 3.34 is what both those texts are quoting. It says, Though he scoffs at the scoffer, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. Now again, I, like I said, God's humor is to me. He, he has a sense of humor. And seeing God scoff at the scoffers, I think of it as studying Frederick Nietzsche. I remember reading, uh, you know, Frederick Nietzsche is the one who said, God is dead. We don't need God, he's dead. God's dead, that's it. And somebody scrawling on Nietzsche's tombstone, Nietzsche's dead, sign God. Okay? God scoffs at the scoffers. Those people who sit back and criticize, oh, religion's a crutch, you don't need this, or they go, but you know what? God's going, hmm, really? They need a crutch, but you don't realize that you're also sick. You're so sick, you need a wheelchair. But the point is, God is in charge. He handles those situations for us. He opposes the proud, the ones who are going to be over here, looking at themselves, but he gives grace to those who will humble themselves. That practical application of humbling ourselves is exemplified in John chapter 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Isn't that a great phrase? When you know how the battle is going to continue, how the battle is going to go, who's already won, you can go on a battlefield and do what you want, can't you? Jesus says, you know what? I know that the Father has given all things. Instead of puffing himself up with pride, saying, I'm the prince. That's it. Everybody come in and bow to me. He says, no, I'm going to do it my Father's way. And he humbles himself. How much does he humble himself? And that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, something we all need to remember. We talked about that in Sunday school. Death and taxes, right? The death you can't avoid. Only one way out of life. Unless you get transcribed. That's a footnote, though. He got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. He's setting an example for him. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One of the things about Peter, I love it. He sticks his foot in his mouth, but he can also fall flat on his face just as well. He humbled himself. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said to him, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I gave you an example that you, should, that you also should do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, a lot of times in the Old Testament we'll talk about, you know, there's, there's those promises that come along with the curses. Like the, ver- the song out there right now, it says, you set life and death right before us. We want to choose life. Here is Jesus' promise to the disciples and his followers. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Humble ourselves and we will be blessed. Jesus is reiterating that verse from Proverbs, giving grace. Now the question is, do you think in the way of the Pharisees, do you do things before men, pat ourselves on the back? Or as a rich young ruler who can do these things and he can trust himself, is that why we do them? Well, I can show up and do these things or I can write this check or I can go do this because uh, we can take care of it. Are you doing it for you or are you doing it for God? What do you hold detestable? What do you hold that is detestable in God's sight? What is it that we value? One of those little eyes that we have over here that God says, "Uh uh-uh, that stinks. What's it going to take to move us over to here? Are we open to that? Or are we like the rich young ruler who's going, nope, here's my context. I want this answer. God doesn't work that way. You still lack one thing. Ask him, but only if you're serious. The Spirit moves on us in conviction. The Spirit will move in conviction in a way that will open things to your eyes. You'll see, you'll understand Wow, I didn't realize I was doing this. God, I'm sorry. It gives us an opportunity. But only ask if you're serious because there are no small vows before God. He takes us at our word. Whether they're kind words, caring words, blasphemous words, deceitful words, He takes us at our word and holds us accountable to them. He knows our hearts. The question, though, is will you give him that heart as a child? The court talks about it this way. When we teach and discipline the children, we tell them to do that right away, all the way, in a happy way. Right? Do we do that for God? How is it we want our kids to do that if we're not willing to do it for God, right away, happy way, all, sorry, right away, all the way, happy way, and apply it to our own lives. If we're willing to do that, then we can humble ourselves before God. Heavenly Father, we just ask now that you would, Lord, humble us. Help us to be humble and humble ourselves. Lord, even as you say, if we would, if your people would come together, humble ourselves and pray, you would save the nation. Heavenly Father, there are sins that stink to heaven.
from our country, from this world. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to humble ourselves to begin and that we would give you the glory for everything. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.